Hey, good morning. Hope everybody's doing well. Let me just start by saying I rarely use the word anointed because I think it's overused. That last song, incredible, incredible work of God through those through those people. Thank you, Kim and Drew and Dan. So it's really good to see you. If you received an email from me saying that Titus O'Brien, our future senior pastor, would be here today, I take the email back. Because I got word from Titus that he has tested positive for COVID. So some of you who knew that have already come to me this morning offering to speak in his place. No. (laughs) Uh, So I heard about this a few days ago. So what what we're doing is we're moving some parts around. And those of you that are a little OCD and following along in the summer bookmark, we just wrecked your summer right there. We're going to move some parts around. So uh, I'm going to jump ahead to the message that I would have been giving uh, in uh, a week from today. Hopefully, Titus is on the men and everything's good and we can bring him in uh, next weekend uh, or sometime after that. So God's still God, right? He is. He's still God. So we're almost to the halfway point of our summer series, Get Your Life Back. And we're using uh, John Eldridge's book, by the same title, as kind of a supplemental resource. And I'm hearing so many of you that are enjoying the book and you're using the pause app to, you know, to detach and to pause from the insanity of the world around us. And some of you are finding that very helpful to refresh uh, using that app. So if you haven't put two and two together yet, basically this summer series is about renewing your soul in a world that's gone upside down. And the world has gone upside down. It literally has. And so today I want to talk to you. If you're following along, you'll know where this is heading. I want to talk to you about the renewing power of getting outside. Yes, that's the topic. And I'm super excited to talk to you about it. So from my uh, earliest days, I love being outside. So as a small kid, like I played in the sandbox. I built forts in the woods and that kind of thing. I, I even cooked canned food over campfires in my own backyard. That's how messed up I was. I remember one time climbing a tree, stepping off the tree onto the roof of my house. And my plan was to take the umbrella that I had strapped to me open the umbrella and jump off the house. It worked in cartoons. Why not? Well, fortunately, my mom caught me and stopped me because that's what moms do. God bless you moms. You have a full-time job. So do you dads. Uh, So I was unhurt because I never jumped. One of my earliest memories connecting God with nature and the outdoors came when I was in the third grade. And I attended a church And as a third grader in my little Sunday school class there, I remember on many occasions on a half-tuned piano, uh, an elderly woman would play the piano whose name I I don't remember, but that group of third graders would belt it out and it became a favorite for us. This is my father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. I never quite got over that as a kid. That song did something inside of me, even as a young boy. So the conservationist John Muir, some of you may be familiar with that name, had a very strict Scottish Presbyterian upbringing. 
Maybe you don't know this part of his story. By all accounts, his father was harsh and legalistic. And so John was required to read the Bible every single day. And as a young kid, he memorized three quarters of the Old Testament and the entire New Testament. It was incredible to think about here. But get this, he especially found God in nature, in the mountains and the streams and the light of the Sierra Nevada mountains. So he became eventually known as the father of the national parks. That's how committed he was to conservation. So uh, recently, uh, I've been sort of cleaning out my office in preparation to transition, and I'm going through uh, some files. When you're around the same place for 35 years, you accumulate all kinds of things. And so I've been throwing away lots of different things. So I came across, though, a reminder of uh, something that our church experienced, and I experienced personally, way back in 1995, seems like forever ago. A friend of mine who lives in California had suggested that we tag team with a friend of his uh, and do a pastoral exchange. Some of you who have been around a long time would remember this. And so uh, my family and myself went to California. I spoke two weekends at a church in California and uh, Tom Mount came here from California and spent two weeks with our church as well. It was an awesome experience. But I'll, I'll have to admit I was tainted a little bit, not only by the opportunity to go and speak somewhere else, but also to enjoy the wonder of California. And as soon as we landed, we headed straight for Yosemite National Park. And if you've ever been there, wow. I mean, it's the first time I had ever been, I think, to a national park. And we're walking around that place. We spent three days there. And I literally, like at every turn, it was like, wow. I mean, the wonder, this is where John Muir was. This is where Ansel Adams did so much of his photography. And there was beauty just woven into that place that, that I'll never forget. Spectacular. So the prophet Isaiah records for us the wonder of a heavenly vision, the wonder of the beauty and the enormity of heaven. He writes this in Isaiah chapter 6. I wish we had time to explore this more because the context is super important. When he begins with these words, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. It was just an extraordinary sight, and the sight terrified him. He would go on to say in that chapter, uh, so much so that he says, Woe is me! For I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I mean, he was caught up in this incredible heavenly vision. But it's in the words of the seraphim or in Hebrew, seraphim, which are basically angels. And if you know the context of this chapter, they're flying back and forth and, and they are praising God. And he sees this and hears this. The angels are saying back and forth to one another these words found in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now, many have suggested that, that that's actually a reference to the Trinitarian God. Holy, holy, holy. But these angels were caught up in the very presence of God. 
these angels in the presence of God, however, they're in his throne room. I find it strange that they're talking about the earth. Did you notice that? And that's because God's glory can't be contained. It spills out everywhere. They go from this extraordinary heavenly scene and they talk about the earth. Why is that? Well, because God has placed his glory all around us. The world, I think, is alive with God. As Gerald Manley Hopkins says it, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. Have you ever seen it? Yes, it is. Or we look at Paul's words in expanding this idea in Ephesians chapter 4. Look at verse 9. Christ ascended higher than all the heavens so that he might fill the entire universe with himself. Now, contrary to sort of a pantheistic view of God that suggests that everything is God, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the presence of Christ being everywhere. There's no place that you can go where he is not. And he reminds us that, that the entire universe is filled with him. Reminds me a little bit of Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Have you ever wondered, why did Jesus come to earth when he came to earth? This is the kind of stuff that I think about. Like, why, why at that point on the timeline in human history? Why does Jesus show up, you know, like 2,000 years ago? Because I'm thinking if he arrived now, he could take advantage of air travel and social media. Maybe he could get more likes and followers. I don't know. Walking the earth now, Jesus could own a smartphone and he could crush it on TikTok. Let's face it. I mean, people would be like, wow, did you see him do that miracle thing on TikTok? Yeah, I did. He could take advantage of a state-of-the-art sound system when speaking to crowds of 90,000 people or whatever. What, what, what was he thinking? Wouldn't now be better? Well, since his ways are perfect, he must have come at the perfect time. And look at the time he came, when life was slow and simple. Jesus spent most of his time outside. He actually spent most of his time walking from town to town in relative obscurity, I might add, not looking for the spotlight, not looking for likes and followers. This was the Jesus that had come to earth. So it seems like in our day, we've lost something. We've lost the art of getting outside. And maybe we're suffering the consequences. So the Journal of Exposure Analysis and Environmental Epidemiology. Yes, that's a thing. And no, I'm not a subscriber, right? The journal has published some shocking findings. When, when, when I read this, I mean, I literally couldn't comprehend it all. The average person now spends 93% of their lives indoors. Wow. Now, that includes transportation, like in the little bubble called our cars and whatever else you might be traveling in. But to live to 100, you would have spent 93 years inside I like the way John Eldridge reminds us about it in his book. He says, living in an artificial world is like spending your life wrapped in plastic wrap. You wonder why you feel tired, numb, and a little depressed. 
He goes on to say, when the simple answer is you have a vitamin D deficiency, there's no sunlight in your life, literally and figuratively. This is a catastrophe, the final nail in the coffin for the human soul. And I would agree with him. What is going on here? So it's not a leap to suggest that there is something therapeutic about being outside and something stifling and suffocating about spending the majority of our time indoors. Now, here's my prejudice. Sometimes church people are late to the party in discovering the power of the outdoors. You know, we, we let all the tree huggers have it. And then we go, oh, well, we don't want to be like that. And so we, the pendulum swings too far the other way because God uses nature to nurture. Have you experienced this? I have. It often takes a guy like Thoreau, of all people, to remind us of the adventures that we can experience. In his book, Walden, he writes these words. He says, men come tamely home at night, only from the next field or street where their household echoes haunt and their life pines because it breathes its own breath over again. Their shadows morning and evening reach farther than their daily steps. He should come home from far, from adventures and perils and discoveries every day with new experience and character. I can hear the music playing in the background when I read that quote. There's something powerful about that. In the same book, Thoreau would say, we need the tonic of wildness. So strange in our day to hear verbiage like that. Now notice where the good shepherd takes us in one of the most famous of the Psalms. Maybe the most famous Psalm. Psalm 23. The good shepherd takes us outside. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. It's beautiful. And here's how these verses sound in another translation. The Lord is my shepherd. I have all that I need. He, he lets me rest in green meadows. He leads me beside peaceful streams. He renews my strength. He guides me along right paths, bringing honor to his name. Do you feel the rest in that? Do you feel just the outside experience described in this popular psalm? In his book, A Shepherd Looks at Psalm 23, Philip Keller writes these words and gives us insight into the behavior of sheep. He says, owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. Because of the social behavior within the flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. The parallel with church is intentional here. He says, lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. He continues, when sheep are thirsty, they become restless and set out in search of water. And if not led to good water supplies of clean, pure water, they will often end up drinking from the polluted potholes. 
So the good shepherd leads these sheep and they are resting in green pastures. They are beside a peaceful stream of water. They are guided along a path. Now don't miss it. They are outside. And the good shepherd is with them. And if you haven't connected the dots yet, we're the sheep. Okay? See, sometimes a, a sermon title points to the appropriate application for the sermon. Did you catch today's sermon title? Get outside. It's pretty simple and straightforward, but let me expand on it a bit with some suggestions. Here's the first one. Get outside. It helps restore your inside. Get outside. It helps restore your inside. Our summer series is about getting our lives back. Why? Why are we even talking about that? Why that title? Why spend an entire summer talking about getting our lives back? Because in all likelihood, your inner world is suffering from the outer world that's gone upside down and you might not even know it. I mean, it took me a while to just kind of get over the, our season of COVID as a church and go, wait a minute, I think, I think something's broken inside of me. I think something has been tainted and affected deeply within me through this experience. And this is a shared experience. We're all in the same world together through this. Could it be that our insides have suffered because our outside world has gone upside down? So the simple practice of getting outside can help renew your soul in a chaotic and noisy world. And I get it, exotic locations are great, but outside is, well, just outside. Just outside. So Tricia and I walk regularly on a little path that's not far from our house, and it sends us through trees and open meadow, and it's just beautiful, and it's refreshing. We walked, walked there yesterday and tried to escape the rain. There's a little saying that we've developed over, gosh, probably three or four, almost four decades now, where we'll look outside and we'll go, you know, it's a Gore-Tex day. <laughs> and what we mean by that is we could put some rain gear on. It's okay. We're not going to melt. What well, she might, but I'm not, okay? Right? Move beyond the walls that encircle us and, and just get outside. You don't have to go far. You don't have to go to, you know, some destination never explored by mankind. Right where you live, right where you are. But there's another benefit of getting outside. Get outside. It helps you experience appropriate smallness. I want to expand on this a bit because I, I love this idea. Something about being outside in the enormity of creation puts you in your place. In a good way, I mean. So... David said it like this in Psalm 8. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? If I could paraphrase that, it would be something like this. David goes outside, just like you and I go outside. And we look up and we look around. And maybe it's at night. Maybe it's in the daytime. Maybe it's the vastness of a space. And we go, wow, this, this is incredible, God. And you, you have placed this just with your fingertips is the, is the metaphor. And then somehow when we see all of that, like David, you and I go, who am I? Who am I in the vastness 
of all of this. And you see, it's that, it's that bigness that forces us to look at our own smallness. I might even call the quest for appropriate smallness an essential spiritual practice. I don't know if you're like me, you could identify with this. <clears throat> I like places that swallow me up in their vastness. Have you ever stood there? Like it's visceral, it's emotive. Something about being in a place of enormity just goes, whoa. You kind of want to like bend your knees a little bit. You just kind of, this, this is incredible. And it helps you understand your place in all of this. Something happens in my inner world when my outer world is incomparably big. The snow had already begun to fall. And there was a chill in the air when I stood on a small dirt road in Alaska. The valley had begun to be shrouded in fog and I could tell we were right on the cusp of something inside of me was just going, this is incredible. And to top it all off, as the snow was continuing to fall, I, I looked on the side of the road and there a fresh wolf print and I don't know, you know, sometimes we see pictures of wolves and we think, oh, it's just like a German shepherd. No, it's not. Like, like a wolf is an enormous animal. And so I'm looking down at a footprint of a wolf. That's not a dog print. I mean, it's enormous. And something in that moment courses through my soul. And I feel small. But in that moment, I'm thinking, God, you're you're here. And this is the amazing nature of your, of your creation because, because big places remind us of bigger graces. If we're really thinking in those moments, it helps us experience, experience appropriate smallness. Well, here's the final benefit of getting outside. <clears throat> Get outside. God is waiting to surprise you with his presence. I really believe this because I've experienced it. If getting outside makes me feel small, it also magnifies God's bigness. It's not just getting outside in the enormity of space and, 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 and you know, beauty and all of that and so that I can just feel small. That's only half the equation. The other side of the coin is not only do I feel small appropriately, but God is magnified. God is big. God seems enormous because he is. It doesn't make God any bigger. It just reveals his bigness. So God often waits to reveal himself after we unplug and slow down long enough to realize that he's there. I, I was thinking about this the other day, writing some stuff in my journal, thinking, you know, God, you, you, a lot of times you don't answer my prayers. And maybe I should tell the congregation about that. <laughs> <clears throat> And here, these are little whispers I hear God say to me. So many times, like, we pray and, like, we do nothing, expecting God to do everything. Like, we, we may not even be taking a step in his direction other than we're shooting up this prayer of desperation. But sometimes I wonder if God's not saying, okay, position yourself, get yourself ready, here it comes. And he's inviting us to step into obedience to at least live up to what we already know to at least be the people that he's called us to be in obeying what he's already told us to do. 
So I, I can't pretend some of the times I felt God the most when, when I've been most aware of his presence when have been times when I've gotten outside. I don't really remember how old I was when I could match the hymn number with the hymn title in my church growing up. So in the church I grew up in, when the song leader said, turn to page 17 in your hymnal, I knew what awaited us, and I loved it. The hymn on page 17 was, How Great Thou Art. And the words celebrate the outdoors as a reminder of God's greatness. I don't know if you've connected the dots with that hymn. It starts like this, oh, oh, Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see the stars, I hear the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. When through the woods and forest glades I wander and hear the birds sing sweetly in the trees. When I look down from lofty mountain grandeur and hear the brook and feel the gentle breeze. Then sings my soul. My Savior, God, to thee, how great thou art, how great thou art. What I'm trying to say here this morning is that we were meant for more than a plastic world with artificial light and rebreathed air. Yes, God can be found anywhere. I'm not arguing the theology of that statement. But something special happens when we encounter God outside. Nature has the power to calm and quiet us. And it's God who's working through nature. There's something restorative about an encounter with God under a canopy of stars or by the crashing waves of an ocean. He seems easily accessible from a mountain vista or in the still dark forest. So get outside. That's your application. <laughs> because not only are you taking God with you, he's already there. Get outside. It will help you get your life back. Father, as we think about your generosity and your goodness, and we think of the imprint of creation that points to you, that testifies to your reality. I pray, God, in our hurried world, when all of life sometimes seems to be falling apart, when we're hanging on by a thread, when our inner world is in turmoil because our outer world is in chaos. Help us, Father, to just step outside. Help us, God to take advantage of the beauty that's all around us, knowing that you're there. It's a reflection of your presence. And we too, like so many over the centuries, can sing, then sings my soul, my Savior, God to thee. How great you are, God. How great you are. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.